0: And all the people said, Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord again with you today and rejoicing in the goodness and mercies of our great God, singing with great reflection, adoration, and reverence the old hymns of Zion. This morning, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. We want to title our message, The Theme of of the book of Nehemiah, which is, Let Us Rise Up and Build, Nehemiah chapter 1. We want to address with you a couple of things in the introductory to our message this morning because uh, typically we don't recognize the way Nehemiah is divided from Ezra in our Bibles, We need to recognize that in the Jewish Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book because they're both composed by Ezra. We also understand contextually that Nehemiah was much like the story of Joseph, the story of Moses, the story of King David, the the story of individuals that were uniquely equipped and raised up in their generation to accomplish the will and purpose of God. We need to understand contextually how that Nehemiah was raised up in a time where there were three remnants of uh, Judah and Israel that were brought back to the land of Israel to the city of Jerusalem for the purpose of, of rebuilding it. Prior to the reading in Nehemiah, we uh, read of a time when Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest were allowed or or decreed by Cyrus to go back to Jerusalem to build first the temple. The temple had already been constructed and even a portion of the wall around the temple. But in the story, ongoing uh, saga of the return of Jews to the land that God had promised to Abraham, there were many challenges. There were many uh, things that weren't right, that weren't completed, and it caused a lot of Jews to be discouraged and absolutely to give up on their Jewish heritage and the promise that God made to Abraham toward them as a nation. Now, we need to recall that Satan is always on the march. He's always trying to corrupt the promises of God. He's always trying to frustrate the designs of God for his people as they reflect his glory. Because remember, his chief hatred is directed toward God himself. And in order to appease that wrath and hatred in the heart of Satan, he persecutes God's people. It's no different in the day of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a, a man that was unique in several ways we're going to learn this morning, and there are four particular things that I want to draw out of this study that not only relate to the day and time of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls and gates of Jerusalem, but also to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and how this Message impacts us in our day, as we th- see things not quite right. Now, I find it interesting that <clears throat> the first thing in the heart of Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to Xerxes, uh, was that he recognized the need. Listen to this in verse, uh, chapter one, verse two that Hanani, one of my brethren, my brother, came and he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped or that had returned to Jerusalem, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. I want to understand several of the principles around this story of rising up and rebuilding the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. We need to recognize the need. This is a holy concern for the people and the house of God. He was not apathetic toward the house of God. He was not indifferent toward the, the proclamation of the word of God that proceeds from the house of God. He was not. He, he was affected deeply by this report that those in the province. Notice that word province because at this time Persia was ruling the world under uh, Xerxes and and. Uh, and at this time, there were 127 provinces that were ruled and governed by Persia. So even Judah, uh, Judea is, is uh, referred to as a province. It's a province belonging to Persia. And he says something here. He says, you know, the people of God that have returned from Babylonian captivity are being afflicted. They're, they're, they're being attacked. They're a reproach they are not even allowed to live within the city walls of Jerusalem because there's no security there there's there's uh, nothing but shame there and and this went straight to the heart of Nehemiah but the first thing he did he recognized the need he recognized that there was a need to repair the things that were wanting there was a need to uh reinforce the commandments of God and and to instill in the hearts of that remnant that God still was upon his throne and still was worthy of their service and still was worthy of their efforts to glorify his name. I think it's very interesting in this chapter how uh even though uh nehemiah as a cupbearer was among the elite of persia he was at the right hand of xerxes he was he was an individual that was uh blessed pro- in prosperity and in position he was over 700 miles away from jerusalem the city the ancient city itself he was he was out of the picture as it were and yet his heart was being stirred To rebuild and to help the people of God that were in Jerusalem. He uh, mourned over and prayed over the condition of this city for a period of four months. I want you to notice something in verse 11 that's very significant to this study. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the king, for I was the king's cupbearer. This is the act of Nehemiah yielding himself to be used by God as a part of the solution to the problem rather than as a part of the problem itself. And a part of the problem itself is often indifference, indifference. One time there was a conference on revival, and uh, a a man that belonged to a particular church that a pastor came to said he really enjoyed the conference, and he said... uh, He said, you're you're just not going to believe what the theme of that conference on revival was. He said, I don't care and I don't know. He says, oh, you went to the conference, did you? You see, the very problems that were connected to revival was indifference. Indifference to the true and real condition of Zion. The real and true condition of Zion. Of Jerusalem. The real and true condition was that, number one, they're under affliction. Number two, the walls are still broken down and the gates have still been burnt with fire. And remember, in this generation, in this day, the gates of the city were very important, not only for entry into the city and protection from the enemy, but also in the gates of the city were uh, a lot of the social uh, interaction that occurred Uh, in the lives of the citizens. In fact, a lot of the judges would sit in the gates and there they would judge and rule the people. The gates were very significant and uh, important in the normal life of the cities of Nehemiah's day. So to say that they were missing or burnt with fire, to say that the walls were crumbling and, and broken down, meant that there was actually very little social activity going on, and there was very little sense of community. There was little, a very little uh, sense of unity, of purpose and design. And that's a very important thing for our study today. If we're going to rise up and build in our generation, we're going to have to recognize our true and actual condition. Do you remember Christ's? Warning to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter three. Remember how that they said that they were rich, and they said that they had need of nothing. And Jesus says, "And in reality, you're wretched, you're blind, you're poor." And and uh, what that means is that they were unconscious of their actual condition. So Nehemiah is conscious of and realizing the actual condition of the city and how important that city is to the lives of God's people, God's humble poor. And he was willing to leave his position of wealth and, um, and uh, prosperity and popularity in order to assist. And in verse 11, he's surrendering his life to the use of the Lord. That's an important part of our study this morning. Turn with me quickly to chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, the, in the 20th year of our text, the king. Now, uh, comparing that to chapter 1, verse 1, we find that there's a four month period that had occurred you know he hears this report he's praying he's studying over what he's to do and he's also developing a plan he's got a he's got a plan in mind on how to rebuild the city and what he's doing And this is wisdom he's waiting for the opportunity he's waiting for the opportunity for God to open the door and and that's wise, isn't it? In Hebrews chapter six, verse twelve, I believe the apostle Paul draws from that point and he says, You know, we we want to be among those that have faith and patiently wait. For the promise of God. Here's the patience and faith of Nehemiah. Four months he's planning. Four months he's praying. Four months he's laboring under this burden. Waiting for this opportunity. And one day the king looks up and he sees his countenance sad. And says, uh, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? What, what's, what's the problem? So at that point, Nehemiah is going to pray. And then he's going to show the plan in verse 7 he says uh, let letters be given to me to uh, to go to the governors beyond the river in these provinces that they may convey me over till I come into Judah and a letter unto Asaph the keeper of the king's house that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertain to the house and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Now see, what he did, he yielded himself as a vessel. He yielded himself as an instrument through which God would rebuild what was torn down. And he waited for the opportunity. Do you see this? But what did he do first? he he recognized the need he recognized the need the second point i want to make about nehemiah is this morning that he realized the significance of prayer all the way through the reading of the book of nehemiah all 13 chapters you can you can read it in uh, probably 20 minutes again and again when you see nehemiah he's praying he's praying so i prayed i prayed he's in constant communion with the lord he is uh, realizing that he, the task is too big for him that the task is too great for an individual it it must be the hand of god it must be the working of god and how do we uh this morning how how do we recognize the things that are wanting and realize That without God's help, these things can never be restored. These things can never be repaired. I love that about Nehemiah. He realized the power of prayer. I think about this in terms of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 18 verse 1. That that all men should pray and faint not. I I think about this in the admonition of the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17 when he says, pray without ceasing. Everywhere you look in the ministry of Jesus Christ, in the four gospel accounts, you will find that often he would go alone aside, apart from the crowd, and pray to the Father. And if Jesus needed to pray often, how much more do you need to and me? But isn't it true that many times the very last, um, the last thing that we consider in uh, the help of the church, or the help of our nation, or the help of, of, of many others in other parts of the world is prayer? We, we, we just, you know, like that person that goes to the doctor and says, "We've done all that we can do. Now it's up to God. It's completely up to God." Now all you got left is 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 prayer. Well. That's the way it is with all of us. Prayer ought to be our first line of defense. Prayer ought to be our first thought. When a challenge comes before our church or our family or our nation, we need to be men and women of prayer. That's one of the things that I highly regard about George Washington, his commitment to prayer. He never led his men into a battle without first leading them in prayer. Did you know that? They used to teach those things in, in school, but they, they, they kind of get away from that because it's too Christian, you see. But I want you to know that the founders of our nation, most of the founders of our nation were Christians, and the American Constitution was a, a based upon a Christian ethic and a Christian value, and it can't support any other society but a Christian society. We we have forgotten many things in America about our founding just as the Jews did in the day of Nehemiah. They they were reaping the the, uh, result of their own rebellion against the God that had given them the nation in many of the same ways we have in our day. But I love this about Nehemiah's witness. He was constantly a man... Of prayer, He was in communion with God. And he leaned upon the direction of the Spirit of God to show him how to go about uh, accomplishing what appeared to be an impossible task. And as we study this wonderful book, we find that there are many parallels to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in these words. The third point that I gained from Nehemiah is in the actual repairing of the walls and the gates. The people had a mind to work. The people had a mind to work. They were uh, willing of themselves to do what it takes to rebuild what had been lost. I want to notice this. uh, In chapter 3, I'd like to step through these 10 gates with you just very quickly and and briefly this morning and see how they parallel some of the things that we acknowledge about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that there were actually 10 gates that were rebuilt by Nehemiah? And each one of them were literal, physical gates to the literal, physical city of ancient Jerusalem. But they also have a spiritual application to the New Testament church. I think it's interesting in chapter 3, verse 1. Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate, and they sanctified it, and set up the doors of it, even unto the tower of Mia. They sanctified it unto the tower of Hananel. Now he starts with the sheep gate. Now, the sheep gate, if you uh, could draw a, a, a modified rectangle in your mind, we're going to start in the northeast corner. That's where the sheep gate is. And, he, and you'll notice these gates are listed in counterclockwise uh, uh, location. We're going to start and end at the sheep gate. Now, here is the sheep gate. Now, this uh, is the first gate that was repaired and the only gate of the ten that it said that they were sanctified. This is the only gate that the high priest would sanctify. And I want you to notice not only that, but I I want you to notice of all ten gates, this is the only gate that didn't have any bars or locks. It was a gate that was intended to always be open. Doesn't that remind you of the reading of John chapter 10 where Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep? Doesn't it remind you how that he says, my sheep hear my voice and and I'm known of mine and they follow me. And and isn't it good for you and I this morning to understand that that door is always open to us? We're not talking about the Motel 6. We're talking about Jesus Christ here. The light is always on. And no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter uh, how you've strayed or how far down uh, you have become, that door is always open to you. It's the sheep gate. Isn't that wonderful? Now, we go from there to verse 3, the fish gate. Oh, and by, let me say this about the sheep gate. The, the reason it's called the sheep gate is because this is where the sheep market was And uh, the main purpose of those sheep being brought to the city of Jerusalem were for sacrifice. And it's interesting that Jesus spent a lot of time at that gate. When Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21, riding upon the foal of an ass, he came through the sheep gate on his way to the cross. So this is a significant thing uh, uh, in our study this morning. Because this is on the heart of Nehemiah. He's wanting to repair the walls and the gates of the city. Now watch this in verse 3. He said, But the fish gate did the sons of uh, Hassanah uh, build, who also laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, and locks thereof, and bars thereof. All the rest of these gates are going to have locks and bars, but not the sheep gate. Here's the sheep. Here's the fish gate. And and this was a very functional uh, uh, gate. Because fish would be brought from the Mediterranean uh, Ocean, the the fishers and the Sea of Galilee. They would bring their wares, they would bring their fish into the city through this particular gate. And it was the fish market. You know, this reminds me of Jesus when he uh, called his apostles. Do you remember this? Do you remember how that he came and called fishermen? And what did he say to Peter in Mark chapter 4 verse 17? He says, follow me and I will make you a Fisher of men. Instead of fishing for fish, I make you a fisher of men. Aren't you glad in the household of faith this morning that there's a fish gate? Aren't you glad this morning that there is a work of evangelism? That a work of sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with those in our community, nation, and world? Aren't you thankful for that? Is there anything encumbering that gate? Is there anything wrong with that gate this morning sometimes there is and it begins with indifference then we come to verse 6 now listen carefully this is the third gate see we're in we're going in order around the city walls moreover the old gate the old gate repaired for jehida the old gate aren't you glad this morning brothers and sisters that there's an old gate that everything's not just for the young Aren't you glad that there's a place where when you have fought many battles, when you have uh, come through many trials and sorrows, when you have faced and been confronted by many, many afflictions in life, that there's a place in this broken world that you can come as an old man, as an old woman, and rest and, 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 and be encouraged through God's wonderful word. But much more than this, I, I see the old gate as a representation of the old truths of God's word. God's word never uh, gets uh, to a place where it's not usable. See, people read the Bible today and they say, Well, that was written so long ago, it doesn't have any, any effect. It doesn't have any benefit in my world today, but not so. Not in the house of God. In the house of God, we have the old gate. We have the gate where Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 16 says, Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths, wherein is the good way. And what? And walk therein. And ye shall find what? Rest for your souls. I'll tell you, I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I love that old time gospel. I love that old-timey message. Uh, It never gets too old for me. I love to hear about the saving grace of a wonderful Savior that came all the way down from heaven's pure world to suffer, bleed, and die on my behalf on a tree of a Roman cross. I love to hear that message. and, And I love to rejoice in that message because it gives all the glory and the praise to the God who saved our soul from hell. It's interesting to me, is it not? I believe the old paths are still still the real and good paths. I, I believe the old truths of God's word, according to Jeremiah chapter 18 verse 15, are, are still uh, the measure stick by which God's people are able to gauge their lives and benefit to the kingdom of God. In verse 11, I want you to notice this. In verse 11, it says... Malchijah the son of Hiram the and uh, Hashub, the son of Pehath Moab repaired uh, the other piece and the tower of the furnaces. <clears throat> and, uh, the, and, uh, and the and 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 the uh, and next unto him repaired Shalom, the son of Halosheth, the ruler of half part of Jerusalem. He and his daughters. I want you to notice this. He and his daughters. Somebody says, well, there's no work. There's there's really no value to uh, women in the church. There's no value. You know, women uh, in the Old Baptist Church, uh, women aren't pastors and women aren't deacons. That means that they don't have any purpose or any real value. That's wrong. I'm going to tell you, God uses godly women in mighty ways to build His church. I believe it's, it's commanded to the older women to teach the younger women how to love their husbands, how how to be good and faithful wives, how to be workers in the kingdom. I believe that there's a, a, a great benefit in that. And you don't have to be a preacher in order to benefit someone else in the church. I think it's important for us to realize what's going on. Uh, what's going on... Um, in the in the in the building up of the church. Uh, there's a work and a very important work for our women in the household of faith. In verse thirteen it says the the valley gate, the valley gate repaired Henan and the the inhabitants of uh, Zenoa, the valley gate. Aren't you glad this morning that there's a valley gate? A gate where the lowly are able to enter the city? Aren't you glad that there's a place for the humble in heart to come and find joy in the household of faith? Aren't you glad that there's a place where we can be free from the struggles of our valley experiences? Well, here it is. It's a picture in the ancient city of Jerusalem. In verse 14 he says, and there, there's the dung gate. And, and of course this is the, the gate through which waste and rubbish was taken. And I, and I believe this. I, I believe that there's a place in the household of faith where things are to be taken out. Things that defile, things that are not true, things that are not in accordance with God's word need to be removed. There's a dung gate here. And this is the fifth gate. And then the sixth gate is the fountain gate. Verse 15. And the, but the gate of the fountain repaired Shalom, the son of uh, colonel Hose. This fountain gate reminds us of the ministry of the Holy Spirit himself. Because the fountain, the fountain, the life of the church is through the Holy Spirit. That's why it, without the Holy Spirit our singing is vain. Our praying is vain. Our preaching is vain. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot preach and we cannot understand preaching. Apart from the Spirit of God, there is no consolation. So what is our greatest need this morning? What is the greatest need in your life, in my life, and in the church, and in the nation? It is the presence of the Spirit of God. Because that's where we get our power. Aren't you glad that there's a fountain gate? In uh, uh, verse 26, we come to the water gate, which is a very significant gate. Not only then, but in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, Moreover, the Nethanim and the Nethanim are just uh, simply temple servants. The temple servants dwelt in Ophel unto the place over against the water gate toward the east and the tower that lies out. The water gate reminds us of the word of God that cleanses us. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26, remember it's the word of God that a husband is supposed to use to cleanse or sanctify his wife, to edify his wife and family. You see, brothers and sisters, in our generation we've We've uh, uh, separated roles. I, I believe that there's an ongoing effort to feminize our nation, to feminize uh, men, to, to make it as though it's, it's a bad thing to be a man. It's a bad thing to be male. And there's a lot of confusion going on in our own country. And you know what I'm saying is true. That shouldn't be in the church of God. The church of God should be a beacon of light based upon the authority of God's word. And the authority of God's word says that God created male and female and he didn't apologize for either one. He didn't apologize for either one. And I'm going to tell you there's a difference between a man and a woman. And that difference is not just biological. That difference uh, goes deeper than biology. Uh, God instructed and he made a man to be a man. Uh, you see a little boy out here. Have you? And, and many of you will uh, recognize this immediately. Um, you, you see a little boy out here, and he uh, he's walking on the on the church ground, and he sees a stick. And he picks up a stick. Another little boy sees a stick, and he picks up a stick. And pretty soon they're toucheing outside. Well, somebody said, oh, you ought to stop that. You, you ought to stop that because, because what, what they're doing, they're, they're, they're uh, encouraging one another to be violent. I read an article on this uh, just recently, and it made me sick. Made me absolutely sick. A little boy was kicked out of a public school for making his finger into a, a form of a pistol and saying, pew, pew, Now, you brothers never did anything like that, I know. But what is he doing? That little boy, you don't have to teach him to do this. You don't have to teach that little boy to build a tree fort. And in the tree fort to put a a, a stick or a limb out there that's a gun. What's he doing? He's acting according to the nature that God gave him. That nature is to protect the innocent. Protect those that are in my family. Those that are in my country that 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 inherent need in the heart of a man to protect the vulnerable and the weak and i'm telling you god made him that way it's not wrong or a violation of uh, any un council or treaty on the child god is the one that created male and female and he did it on purpose Because in the making of the man and the woman who are brought together in matrimony, who are brought together in a marriage, they become one before God and uh, they each supply what the other one lacks. That's God's idea. That's God's plan. Sanctifying the family through the word of God. I believe that the greatest problem in our homes today, and I'm talking about in the church, I'm talking about us. I believe the greatest problem in our, in our churches today is men not taking the responsibility to be the spiritual head of their house. In the instruction of their children, in the uh, building up of their wives, uh, in the, uh, in the um, centering of the word of God uh, in the home and in the family, the family altar where we get together and read the Word of God together. We're too busy watching sports. We're too busy being involved in things that don't amount to a hill of beans. And pretty soon we forget what God said about the family, what God said about the nation, what God said about the church. And when we forget that, guess what takes its place? Tradition. Tradition. When we are only able to appeal to tradition in order to identify who we are in the world, we have lost the word of God. I love what Edersheim said in his book on, he's a converted Jew, uh, a messianic Jew. He wrote a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And in that book he gave me a nugget, he gave me several nuggets, but he gave me this nugget. He said there's a difference between tradition and traditionalism. He said uh, tradition is uh, an action or uh, an activity that is based upon the revealed word of God. But traditionalism is when we have forgotten the word of God and begin to replace it with tradition. With just, the, uh, the reason we do it is because that's what we do. I asked, I asked my father, my father was a pastor for 35 years, you know, I asked him one time, I said, Dad, why do we raise our hand up when we baptize uh, people in the church? Why do we raise our hand up? Uh, and he said, well, because the fellow that baptized me raised his hand up. And the bab- you know, and, and this became a tradition. But I don't find any, I, I don't find any uh, scriptural warrant for raising your hand up when you're baptized. But that's just the way we do it. And and so many times, so many of my uh, questions back then was answered uh, in this way. Well, that's just that's that's the way we do it. You know, it's like that woman that uh, uh, every uh, Thanksgiving uh, she would uh, take a ham. And she'd cut about two inches off of the end of that ham. And she'd fix that ham, and, and that's what she did year after year after year. Well, she had daughters, and, and the daughters, uh, when they got married and had their own families, and and it came Thanksgiving time, they 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 cut the end off of that ham before they'd cook it. And the husband come and say, What in the world? Why, why are you wasting the end of that ham? You know, I don't know. And they went back to Mama and said, Mama, why do we cut the end off of that ham before we cook it? And she said, because that's the only way that ham would fit in Mama's pan. See, See there, was a, there was a reason for it. There was a, a useful purpose for it to begin with. But it became a tradition that nobody understood why we do that. Why is that the way we do Because we've allowed tradition to replace the word of God. That's what happened to Judah. That's what happened to the city of Jerusalem. And it incurred the judgment of a holy God. Because they forgot him and his word. So these gates are real important, aren't they? These gates are reminders of of what it means to be the household of God. He says in uh, the eighth one, I've got to hurry, <laughs> I'm spending too much time on this. Uh, verse 28, we've got the horse gate. We've got the horse gate. From, uh, from above the horse gate repaired the, the, the priests, every one over against his house. Now the horse gate was a very significant gate in the cities of that day because that was the, the gate through which the warriors on horses and chariots would come out of the city to face the enemy. The horse gate was a very important gate. It was wider than the other gates. It was taller than the other gates. And and they could could move an army quickly out of the gate to confront the enemy when the city was uh, was uh, uh, being attacked. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we're we're at war today. We're, 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 We're being besieged on every side, and a lot of us don't even realize it. This humanistic uh, society in which we are living, this godlessness, this um, lack of fear and regard for the Word of God and the truth of God, all of those things are besieging us. The LGBTQ, RST, UVW, XYZ movement, it's it's out there and, and it's coming after you. It's coming after your children. It's coming after our church. It's hard for me to even think about a Canada, a Canadian minister is in jail today for one reason. He went ahead and preached to his congregation after the government said, shut your doors because of the COVID. They shut their doors for three and a half months. But his church came to him and says, "Man, we're, we're 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 drying up on the vine, and and we believe that God called us not to forsake our uh, the assembling of ourselves together, and we're tired of this, and we need to go forward." And the minister said, "Yep, let's do it." And the government arrested him, and he was in jail for thirty-seven days. Uh, it's hard for me to conceive of that, but it's happening, and brothers and sisters, it's coming to a house near you soon. You see. The devil is always on the move. He's always working against the house of God. He's always trying to tear down the walls, burn the gates, and destroy the significance of the temple. And brothers and sisters, Nehemiah was raised up in his generation, and he had one message, and this message was, let us, not somebody else, let us rise up and build. But we're going to have to build God's way. So he rebuilt that horse gate because there's battles to wage. There's battles to be fought in the service of God. And then in verse 29 of chapter three, he says, "And then uh, and after him repaired also uh, Shemaiah the son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate. The east gate. I, I tell you what. I, I I'm just telling you, the east gate is what they today call the Golden Gate." In Jerusalem, they, they call it the Golden Gate because they believe that the Messiah is going to come through that gate on his second return. Well, brothers and sisters, this reminds me so much of the second coming of Jesus Christ. This reminds me of his triumphant return. This reminds the children of Israel that there is a Messiah That God has promised. And by the way, we have a message for our Jewish friends. We have a message for Israel today. We have a message for our nation. That Messiah has come. And His name is Jesus Christ. And and Jesus Christ... The one that died upon the cross and rose after three days and nights in the tomb. Jesus Christ said he was coming again. And one day, brothers and sisters, the eastern sky is going to split wide open. And the Son of God is going to descend with all the glory of his Father's house and with his holy angels with him. And he's going to gather all the nations in the world before him. Yeah, this is Matthew chapter 24 and 25. This is what's going to happen. And he's coming again. And and he's going to say unto his sheep on his right hand, Come unto me, ye blessed of my father, and inherit the kingdom. Prepare for you from the foundation of the world. And to those on his left hand, he's going to say, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, for I never knew you. There's a lot of folks today, Putin and many others just like him, that think that they are really something. That they they, they think that they're getting away with everything. But brothers and sisters, one day they're going to stand before the face of a holy God in judgment and receive according to what they have done against Him and against His humble poor in the earth. You can rest assured of that. I believe that east gate reminds me of that. And if you're taking notes this morning, I don't have time to go to these verses, but in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 16 through 22, uh, Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 22 through 25, and Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 through 5, they all talk about the east gate. The glory that departed out of the east gate is going to come back again. And then... The tenth gate. In verse 31, And him repaired uh, Malchiah, the goldsmith's son, unto the place of the Nethelim, the the temple servants, and of the merchants over against the gate, Mifkad, Mithchad, and to the going up of the corner. Mithchad, which is the word in Hebrews that that means appointment, uh, accounting, Judgment uh, and muster. When uh, uh, those of you that have served in the military knows what it means to muster. To be collected, to be assembled, and and to be accounted of. And I believe that, brothers and sisters, this this is a very significant part of our message this morning. The world says that God has... Can only love. That's the only message you ever hear. From many of the world's um, advocates today. Uh, God is judge not. Lest ye be judged right. Um, God is love. So you're supposed to love everybody and everything. That everybody does. I'm going to tell you that's a perversion of the true word of God. We cannot embrace that which is contrary to the word of God. We cannot and and what he, he in this gate, there is a mustering. There is an assembly place where God's people are uh, made to give an account. It was in this place that Nehemiah, in a later chapter, would stand. And the people that were gathered there, over 50,000 of them, 50,000 Jews, w- were gathered there. And they entered into a covenant with God. And when uh, Ezra would, would give them the reading of the word of God... They would commit, they would covenant, this is what we will do. Did you know that I believe it's good for the church to periodically read the church covenant? We we have a church covenant. We are covenanted, as members of this body, we are covenanted together to uh, be responsible citizens of Zion. Uh, I, I think we need to muster one another. We need to encourage one another as we stand for the things that God's word has taught us. Not only about ourselves and our homes and our families and communities, but our nation and world. We need to muster around the word of God and around the manner in which we covenant with one another to be the household of faith. I took too much time on that but I'm going to go to my fourth point and be quick about it. The fourth point I want in the study of Nehemiah, you know we we've, we've looked at him, we've we've looked at him recognizing the need and realizing the power of prayer and repairing the walls and gates of the city, but the fourth and last point is in the reviving of the people. Now we talk about revival But many of us want a pain-free revival. Many of us want a revival that happens quick. Many of us uh, want a, a revival that doesn't require anything of us. But brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you. In studying the book of Nehemiah, you see that in the atmosphere of revival, listen to me carefully on this point. In the atmosphere of revival, there is always, number one, a return to the Word of God, number two, the spirit of repentance of known sin, number three, the confession of that sin and 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 and, and uh, uh, expressions of faith in God, faith not in ourselves, but faith in God himself. This is always in the atmosphere of revival. And that's exactly what we see. in. Uh, we're going to skip over some goodies uh, and go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Because here they are. The walls have been completed. By the way, you've got over 20 miles of walls. Now think about this. Many of us drive more than 20 miles to get here. But think about this. Measure out about 20 miles and think about this. In 52 days... 20 miles of wall that was 4 foot thick and 16 foot high was completed. Now, just think about that. I'm still working on the leaves that fell in my own front yard uh, from the early fall. I mean, you know. And to think about that many miles of stones. And in 52 days, they completed it. And they put up these ten gates. And this must have been a beautiful sight. And now it comes to the time of dedication. It comes to the time when Ezra is going to come back on the scene with the word of God in chapter 8. And all the people, verse 1, gathered themselves together as one man in the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, and the, uh, which the Lord had commanded, to Israel. The walls and the gates were completed on the, sixth, uh, the 25th day of the sixth month. And the ministry that God used to bring revival began on the first day of the seventh month, which marked the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets. The tenth day of the seventh month would be the the feast of the day of atonement. And then following that was seven days of the feast of tabernacles. This is Leviticus chapter 23 verses 23 through 44. Isn't it interesting that at this very important time that God would bring Ezra on board who was a scribe and he would teach the law of God. Uh, Verse 2, and uh, Ezra the priest Brought the law before the congregation, both men and women. Notice, both men and women. Uh, see, the gospel isn't just for males. It's not just for men. It's men and women. And by the way, uh, Logan, uh, the gospel is also for you. You see, the gospel is for you. The gospel is for children. Men and women and children We're giving attendance to the word of God. And Ezra in verse 4 stands at the pulpit of wood. And he's, verse 5, he opens the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above the people. And when he opened it, the people stood up. The people uh, recognized the significance of what was about to be read. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. I love that. The great God. The great God. Why was that significant? Remember, they're under Persian. They're under Persian authority. They're under Persian uh, uh, rule. Uh, They uh, are in a culture of idols, idol gods. In fact, the king of Persia thought he was God and and that he should be worshipped as God because in his dictatorial rule, if you didn't obey him, he could cut your head off. So in that context and in that culture, Uh, Ezra is going to remind, and Nehemiah is going to remind the people of Israel of the great God. There's a God greater than America. There's a God greater than the Republican Party, praise his name. There's a God greater than Putin. There's a God greater than Hitler, greater than Stalin, greater than any God that men might fall before and worship. He's the great God. And all the people, listen, here, here we're going to muster. Here, here, here we're going to give account. Uh, and, and all the people answered and said, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the spirit, the atmosphere of revival. The Word of God is being preached. There's repentance of known sin. There's confession of that sin. And there's worship of the true and the living God. Somebody says it doesn't matter who or what God you worship as long as you worship. That's right out of the pit of hell. That's not biblical. It's not something Christians can be a part of. We cannot ever, ever, ever worship Mother Earth. We can't do that. We can't bow the knee to those that would say uh, it's unlawful for you to assemble or to preach against homosexuality or to preach against abortion or to preach against other of these moral issues in our generation. We can't do that. We can't stop doing that because we don't have the right to change the Word of God and exchange it for tradition. can't. But, oh, friends... Drop down to verse 10. Here, 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 uh, you know, <laughs> here's where I should have started. Then he said unto them, go your way and eat fat. Now, isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Don't tell me about no fat-free diet. And drink the sweet. <laughs> Don't tell me about Diet Coke's. And sent portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. Now, now here, here he's yeah. saying, I want you to, I want you to think about those who are less fortunate than you, those that don't have as much as you do. Those that need help, need a helping hand in the name of Jesus. Those that need a helping hand, you prepare uh, something not only for yourselves, but for somebody that you know is without food. For this day is holy unto the Lord, uh, neither be ye sorry. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Brothers and sisters, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is always depending on my circumstances. Happiness is always related to my circumstances in my life. But not so with joy. Joy is a gift and a fruit of the Holy Spirit of God that even when my circumstances are dire, even when my circumstances are rough, even when my circumstances bring sadness and darkness around me, I have an inward joy that, that the world, nor time, nor the devil can ever take away. When you see the spirit of revival, it's going to produce joy. Joy. Jesus says, I've given you my word. Why? I, I, I've given you abundant life. Why? That you might have joy and uh, that abundantly. We need the abundant joy that comes through obedience to the word of God. And when we hear the word of God, listen to me, listen to me. And I'm closing with this. Uh, there's a lot of verses I didn't get to on revival. Uh, Psalm chapter 85 is one of them. Uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 57 is another one. Um, And Ezra chapter 9, I was going to go back to Ezra chapter 9 verses 8 and 9 and and, uh, some New Testament, but I don't have time this morning. But this is my main point on revival. Revival doesn't happen accidentally. It's, It's not an accident. There is an intentional pursuit of revival on the hearts of God's people. And by the way, I believe it begins with ministry. I believe it does. I I believe it begins in the heart of the leaders of the church who long for revival, who long to see God's people prosper, God's people be in peace, God's people move forward and engage the enemy of our culture and the enemy of our God in the power and the name of Jesus Christ with hearts that are filled with joy. Because that's when we're strong. Somebody asks you, well, what church you go to? Oh, how's your church doing? Oh. Do you have a word for me? Oh, not me. You know, come to church like we're, 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 we're sucking on a lemon. <laughs> or practicing for our next funeral. No. Brothers and sisters, I believe that the atmosphere of, of, of revival comes... When God's people fall more in love with Christ than they do in love with the world. Fall in love with God's word. Have that special time during the day or night when you're able to just get by yourself, by yourself, alone with God's word. And just raise your hands up to the Almighty and say, oh Lord, I know you're real. I know you have a reason and a purpose for me being here. Just like you did, Nehemiah. Lord, take this brokenness and this sorrowful and uh, sometimes uh, stubborn heart. And you mold it and you uh, make it into something that you can use for your kingdom work. And Lord, bless my wife and my children to know you and to love you and love your kingdom. And bless our church to be builders instead of tearers down. Bless us to see in our generation a great revival as was in the day of Nehemiah. Brothers and sisters, it's time. In God's providence for us to rise up and build. Thank you for your good attention. God bless you.